Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Faith at the forefront of today's events from a Catholic cultural perspective. It's in the arena with your host, Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Hey, gang, welcome back to In the Arena. My name is uh, Monsignor Kieran Harrington. We have a uh, packed full show today with you. Uh, Marvin Lynn is going to be here with Father Mike Russo to talk about uh, gun control. Uh, we also have Christina Scott Reed and actor Daniel Garrell from the play Shadowlands. Uh, they're going to be speaking to us about uh, uh, T.S. Eliot and uh, C.S. Lewis, rather. And then we also have Joe Pataglia, Renaissance Media, speaking with us a little later about some of the projects that he's been involved in. But first, I'm very uh, pleased to have with us Brad Hirschfeld. You know him. He's the president of the National Center, Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Thanks very much to be with us. Good to be with you. Brad, there's a lot happening in the world, and, and the two things that we could maybe focus on is uh, the sort of sensational things uh, in terms of all the uh, really Hollywood icons, news icons, uh, the fall from grace uh, of people like Charlie Rose or uh, if you, th- you think of Matt Lauer, um, this, this, this sort of failure here. And then, uh, and then also, and perhaps uh, which is more threatening to all of us, but he seems to get very little attention, is uh, the threats in North Korea. So let's, let's just talk about, uh, first, this question about the harassment of women, and the, the, particularly in the workplace, and it yeah. seems primarily to be women. And, and these men who have uh, great uh, power and privilege, uh, what do you think on a spiritual level is happening? So I think you use two of the words that I would have invoked, which are power and privilege, and I would add money and celebrity. Now, I'm not opposed to any of those things. Inherently, I think that God places all these things in the world for a reason. But I think that the combination of power and privilege and celebrity and money can be dangerously seductive for people. It doesn't let anyone off the hook who's done what they've done. It means we're going to have to ask culturally. If we want women, and to the extent that men are affected also, to be safe from this kind of abuse, Mm-hmm. We're going to really have to ask, how do we position people and send them messages that anything they want to do is probably okay? Because millions of people stand and applaud for them, and they're paid, in the case of Matt Lauer, $20 million a year for reading the news. Now, I'm a proud capitalist. If the market can buy it, that's fine. But when it's only driven by that concern, there are spiritual pitfalls and I think we're beginning to fall into them. Do you think there is a uh, double standard that's applied? I mean, Al Franken is still in the United States Senate. John Conyers remains in the House of Representatives. Uh, but Matt Lauer, you know, he was sent packing. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, those who are in in other industries, you know, they are not uh, treated the same way. Well, I don't know that it's a double standard. I think there's two different systems. In other words, Matt Lauer works for someone. And that corporation, by the way, in its own self-interest also, jettisons him quickly. Right, I mean, one could really take a good hard look at this. And John begin Conyers to ask, and Al Franken work for the American people, but don't they? no. But if that's the case, then we would wait till the next election cycle, and they should make a decision. I want to be clear. 
Um, I am no fan for lots of reasons of, of Al Franken, haven't been for a long time. But one of the lines I used recently is that Roy Moore may be a monster. Al Frankenstein is not. Mm. He's done something wrong. A price has to be paid for it. I don't know that it should even wait until the next election cycle. But we should be clear, it's easy to fire someone who's a direct hire. Mm -hmm. When you're an elected official, we wait until the next election or not. Can't the body expel you? Can't the body censure you? It can. The heels can be up for election sooner. It took three years to throw Bob Packwood out of the Senate. The process is painfully slow. What I think we do have to look out for, though, in all these cases, what's the right mix of appropriate sensitivity without imagining that all these evils are equally bad. Are they? Is this a spiritual problem? It's a human problem, and since I think we are spiritual beings, by definition, yes. I don't think this is going to be fixed simply by punishing it away. Right? You punish it away, there'll be more people with the same problem. I think there is a heightening of sensitivity. I do think punishment and justice are critical quivers, arrows in the quiver that we need as a society. But there is a kind of soul-searching. It's an old problem. King David had this problem Mm. in the Bible. When you really think that you have been anointed. Now, in secular America, we don't think God anoints anybody by and large. We think the masses anoint you and cheer for you. When you feel anointed and have that kind of power and privilege, you better be on the lookout. Because if someone as great as a King David fell prey to his own Mm -hmm. self-seductions, this is where the spiritual piece comes in. We better train every person who has the kind of privilege and power you talked about to be looking at themselves and asking, who is their potential Bathsheba, mm-hmm. and are they surrendering to that impulse? Yeah. Let's change uh, topics a little bit, uh, because even though that is a very important issue and we need to speak about it and give voice to it, I think, because you know, as a, as a clergy member and priest, you know, this is a, this, the trajectory of this scandal is very similar, although different in that so much— it, and the, and the clergy had involved children. Um, important topic, something to be given voice to, spoken about, so that people can feel comfortable coming forward. The other big issue, though, that is uh, faced with, uh, that people are faced with, is uh, is North Korea. It seems uh, the New York Times had a report earlier this week that said uh, some people would pro- project that there's a 15 to 50 percent chance of war with North Korea. Why don't we talk about North Korea a little bit? And what did you think? What was your immediate reaction when you heard that North Korea has ICBM capability uh, that could strike the East Coast? It's disturbing, but there's nothing surprising about it. This is a terrorist state, I don't use that phrase lightly, whose central identity has been formulated over the last decades around their ability to function as a full nuclear power. They are staking everything they have on the ability to cultivate this. So am I concerned about it? I am. Am I surprised by it? I'm not. Brad, uh, you know, when you think about uh, Israel took very seriously the Iranian threat of nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. what are the lessons Iran is learning right now from how the United States is handling this interaction with North Korea? And does that concern you? It's a good question. I actually, and I want to be careful about this, I have greater confidence in the possibility of a rational relationship with Iran than I do with North Korea. Because Iran, you're not dealing with just one person. Here, you're dealing with one guy. And also, as out of whack as parts of that culture are, there are parts of it that are actually not so dissimilar from our own. Mm -hmm. There's a foundation. Again, I'm not 
overly hopeful. Yes, I understand what you're saying. But I think there's more common ground to be found there. Um, And so I am concerned. But I want to be clear. I don't think we really know what to make of it. And handicapping, it's a very funny thing. Right now, it seems as of this morning, the White House is going to dump the Secretary of State. The Tillerson is on his way out. Mike Pompeo seems to be on his way in in with Tom Cotton likely to replace the CIA. I I think we're going to have to ask at least as often not just how to define our potential enemies or actual enemies based on how bad they are, but also ask how can we be smart. What concerns me the most and often happens when people go to war is they spend all of their time talking about how they are right. Now, in this case, I think we are right. But it turns out that being right is often a path to war, not a path to peace. Is getting North Korea... The uh, getting North Korea to disarm, at least from nuclear disarmament, is that even a possibility, do you think? I don't think so. And I think that trying to suggest to people that, it, well, with warfare it is, but God help us, and I mean that quite literally, if we come to that place. But no, I don't see right now, based on past history or current sociology and, and ideology in North Korea, any peaceful path by which they disarm their nuclear capacity. Brad Hirschfeld is the president of the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Thanks very much for being with us here in the arena. All the best. We'll be right back. Dear Calvary Hospital, James Lee was a true hero. Saving lives was something he always wanted to do, whether as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne or as a New York City fireman. They called him Jimmy. I was proud to call him Dad. But when terminal illness ravaged his body, this man's man knew that this was one life that could not be saved, not even by me, an experienced nurse. It just wasn't fair that he had to suffer like this. But then Calvary stepped in. You relieved his enormous pain and not only gave him the peace and comfort he deserved, but you also gave me and my family a chance to enjoy his final days, smiling and laughing, together one last time. How can we ever forget what you mean to us? Yours truly, Colleen Lee. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Call us at 718-518-2000. Thank you. As the pieces of the financial, investing, and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Jannie.com. Jannie Montgomery Scott, LLC. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey gang, welcome to In the Arena. Shadowlands, play by C.S. Lewis, is being performed at the Acorn Theater on 42nd Street in New York City. It's not actually a new play. It's a story about uh, the love story between the renowned Oxford actor and scholar C.S. Lewis 
and Joy Davidman, a Jewish-American writer, ex-communist, and Christian convert. Uh, here to tell us a little more about Shadowlands is actor Daniel Jarrell and Krista Scott Reed. Welcome to In the Arena. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the play. So the play speaks about a love story. Uh, this Christian apologist, Oxford scholar, person, uh, great intellect, falls in love with this woman, American, right? Yes. Uh, seemingly completely different than he. Yes. She gets sick, and he has to struggle with this question of of her illness. Well, let me back up a bit because we're in an age now where friendships are made long distance a lot more easily than they were in those days because of the internet and people can talk to people in different continents and fall in love. I mean, there's a a syndrome going on at the moment. Um, Before that, of course, there was epistolary romances. You there were. you know, the, the letter writing between various famous figures in history are published in books, and people can actually form an intense connection just by writing letters. And that's what happened in this case. So by the time they met, they had a, 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 an intimacy that was entirely cerebral, uh, which was shaken up by the physical presence of each other when they finally met in a rather awkward situation, obviously, as rather comedically expressed in the play. And it, and it went on from there. How... Uh Daniel, did you get involved in this production? I got a call. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I just, it just landed in my lap out of the blue. I was delighted. I think um, maybe it was a raffle. I must have got it. <laughs> <a little bit. laughs> you have they to ask you over. That. They flew you over. I never really asked you. We, 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 you casted. Yes. And, um, and w- along with our casting director, uh, Judy Henderson. And uh, Judy and I talked about what, the, what an important... I mean, the, the play is this role. It is this mm-hmm. man's story. And we had to have someone incredible in it. And, and Judy immediately suggested Danny, and we were off to the races. And so we were just crossed our fingers that he would be interested in the role, and he was, thank goodness. Chris, are you a, uh, are you, are you a believer yourself? I am. I am a person <coughs> of faith myself. So when you, uh, when you came to this work, mm-hmm. how did you, I mean, you're putting this together. How are you, how is your own faith, uh, how is your own faith impacted by putting this production together? Well, it's certainly <coughs> coming to it as a person of faith. It gives me a certain, uh, I take the words in it very much to heart. Not that anyone wouldn't, but, you know, it's, it's deeply personal to me. So the, the, the things that, that the Lewis character says in the play resonate very deeply with me, and I'm very moved. I've seen this play hundreds of times now mm. from rehearsal and previews, but it continues to move me, and I, I can't think it's an accident that part of the reason it continues to move me so much is not only the incredible acting and the wonderful script, but that it speaks to me on a deeper level. It essentially addresses the problem of evil. Right. How it, does a Christian? It addresses the problem of pain more than it does the problem mm. of evil. I mean, we look at all, like, the tragedy that happened this week. Why does God allow suffering in the world? Why does God allow not so much evil, but but the, it, especially in Lewis's case, the pain of his the wife that he had finally come to love and finally come to be married to and had such a short life. How? How do we address that through faith, and how do we struggle with the idea of what is the purpose of pain in our in our lives? How did you? How did C.S. Well, Lewis brought, come to that conclusion? How did he? Oh, Lewis. Lewis. Um, you know, f- f- let me just <coughs> diverge a little bit because my education was almost identical to his—an all boys boarding school from the age of six and uh, a total disassociation with the female sex and steeped in. Um, the Anglican church chapel every mm-hmm. Sunday and so forth. Um, his, 
you know, the, the, what moved me away from being a person of faith for many years was the very question that is brought up in the play, is that what is going on here, really? If, if we have some sort of entity that is responsible for what's going on, they have a lot to answer for. Um, God's a masochist of some sort. Sadist, perhaps. Mm. Um, and, but but I, I also took very seriously the fact I had a Jewish father and I studied Judaism for a number of years. And what I, why I responded to Lewis, why I'm able to play it. I mean, you, you, you can play anything. You, if, you, if you're able to play a murderer, you can yeah. play a lover. So yeah, the, yeah, that's okay. the part of the job. <laughs> but um, what I, for me, what, when, when, when Lewis comes to terms with the fact that he could, uh, he's capable of falling in love, to me, there's a sort of a parallel to, to opening your heart and accept, accepting you know, being a person of faith. I'm not quite there yet, but um, it's, it's, for me, it was fascinating to actually do this play and then read the Bible again and, and read Lewis's books because I went from being kind of just bored with the idea to being fascinated. And as somebody said to me recently, I'm back on the search. That's the question I was going to ask is, is, is when you're playing C.S. Lewis, you want to be faithful to him. Mm -hmm. But then there's Danny. Mm -hmm. He's a different person. Mm -hmm. How does C.S. Lewis teach Danny? And what does Danny bring to C.S. Lewis? Well, we already have a relationship because <coughs> I'm, my generation grew up on the Narnia books. Mm -hmm. And it was a shock to me when I, d when I was informed that it was a metaphor for Christianity. <laughs> I thought it was just a cuddly lion. I didn't. Um, I, but, but in the end, you know, the end, at, at, at 10.30 at night, I go my way, Lewis goes his. I think that's probably the best way to describe that. Is that true? So there is a, there's a, there is a compartment a compartmentalizing of C.S. Lewis in your life? Yes, I suppose so. I think, I mean, at different times of the day, every single individual, whether they're an artist or not, will be a different person at 10 <coughs> o'clock, a different at 11, a different at noon, because diff you, you're informed by who you're with, what you're thinking, what you perceive. And if you go to a, a, an art gallery and you see a painting, it changes you in that moment, not necessarily for the rest of your life, because everything is, I think, very ephemeral. Why do you think people should come to see Shadowlands? What will they get out of it? <clears throat> Most, at any moment in, in the world, there are a quadrillion stories being told. And what we learn from that is that having stories told to us is the most important part of our lives as sentient beings. And this is yet another story in the great panoply of stories going on in New York City, but it is told with such truth and intelligence in the writing. And the production is so superb that it, the, whether you, whatever your feelings are, whatever faith you belong to, or if you have a lack of faith, you, you are guaranteed an incredibly intense, strong, enjoyable, comedic, and heartbreaking couple of hours in the theater. So you're sitting in the audience, I'm sure. So what's been the audience reaction? The audience <coughs> has been loving it. And a lot of them are familiar with the movie with Anthony Hopkins and sure. Deborah Winger but it's been a lot of years and they, they remember liking it but they can't exactly remember why mm -hmm. and then they come and revisit the story and are just blown away by it. I think also they're quite surprised that they, they knew they were going to be moved. They knew they were going to get their hankies out at some point but what they hadn't realized is how much they're going to laugh as yeah. well as Danny said. Do you think uh, Max McLean had a fellowship for performing arts? Mm -hmm. Right, He comes, uh, he's done Martin Luther, he's done some work on uh, C.S. Lewis already. Uh, does it matter that uh, this is a uh, that the project is grounded in the faith, uh, or is is or is how does that affect the project? How does it affect the work that you're trying to do? Well, it certainly matters to Max. I mean, yes. the, the mission of the organization is to deliver theater from a Christian worldview to uh, 
to appeal to a diverse audience. And I particularly appreciate that last bit. As Danny was saying, he's gone from being not interested to having some interesting searching thought. And uh, my goodness, that, that says it all. Right. That, that any person, regardless of their faith background, can come to see this and suddenly be thinking thoughts they hadn't had before or hadn't thought in a long time and want to revisit. So it, it can speak to, there, there's so little really excellent intellectual theater or art for a, a Christian person. So on that level, it's really nice to have art that is not speaking down, that is not derivative or simple-minded when it comes to the Christian experience. So as a Christian, it's really nice to come and see a piece of art that is intellectually challenging and funny and emotionally engaging. And then as a, not a person of faith or a person of a different faith, it's satisfying on all those levels for maybe different reasons or the same. It's, I, I like the fact that they, they really want to do intellectually and emotionally challenging and engaging work uh, because there isn't really a lot of that. Another thing that I love to point out about this story is Danny talked about the friendship and love between the two of them is that we so often don't get a love story for people past the age of 30. Right. I, so many of the stories being told about love and falling in love young and passion love. are about <laughs> young love. Right. And that's fine. That's great. But honestly, theater audiences are not mostly 25-year-olds. I know I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate seeing a story about people whose lives are complicated and there's past marriages and children and traumatic events and, and long friendships. And it, it's so much more, love is so much more complicated and perhaps more satisfying as a result when you see a love story by people who have really have years under their belt and really have something to lose as a result. Now, it's uh, at the Acorn Theater, which is at 42nd Street, and where? Uh, between 9th and 10th? 8th yeah. and 9th. 9th and 10th. And uh, tickets, what are they range of prices? Uh, ooh, that's a great question. If you go on the website of Fellowship for Performing Arts... Uh, buy your they, tickets there. Yes, they, they will have a range I of I think they start as low there. as 50. I mean, it's a very yeah. well-priced thing. Yeah. Just, just right. very quickly, though, Chris mentioned the movie. It's a very different animal to the mm -hmm. movie. The movie yeah. probably captures about a quarter of what the play achieves. Danny, do you think that... Uh, is the play alive in that it's not simply a representation of what C.S. Lewis wrote, mm -hmm. but, but that if C.S. Lewis were writing it today, how would he be, would, he, would it be the same? Would it well, be of the course, same it's play? filtered through a very brilliant writer called William Nicholson, who's written the play yeah. based on his knowledge of C.S. Lewis's life right. and, and reading. Um, I think Lewis would be absolutely thrilled <laughs> 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 to be portrayed in this way, do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think he'd love it. He'd have a good life. He, he, was, he sounded like a very jovial, charming man. Right and very complex. So tickets start at $30. It's the Acorn Theater, 42nd Street. It's Shadowlands. Uh, you can go to the uh, Fellowship for Performing Arts to purchase tickets. Thank you very much, Danny Gerald. Gerald? Gerald. Gerald and, uh, uh, and Krista, uh, Krista Scott-Reed for being with us. St. Sebastian is a thriving parish. The chapel is open for adoration with benediction weekdays from 7.30 until 6.45 and Sundays from 8 to 5. There are also weeknight masses every day at 7 p.m. with a Spanish service on Thursdays, in addition to the regular Sunday mass schedule, which offers eight opportunities for worship, including a 10.30 a.m. mass with ASL interpreter and a noon mass in Spanish. Come out and join us at 3963 57th Street in Woodside, New York. New York.
And Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old-world Italian recipes, handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian-American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0000. The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms or Us now to protect your home and family. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. As the pieces of the financial investing and retirement puzzle continue to get more complicated, feel confident in your financial future at Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie's analysts and market strategists have the knowledge and expertise to help you understand trends and identify opportunities in changing markets. Call George Prezioso at 718-238-4800 for a complimentary consultation and financial report. Or go to Janie.com. Janie Montgomery Scott, LLC. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey, gang. Welcome to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. Uh, we're being joined by Marvin Lim. He's an attorney based in Atlanta, Georgia. Professionally, he focuses on gun violence prevention, litigation, and advocacy. He's currently with the Brennan Center. He's a member of Holy Cross Parish in Tucker, Georgia, where he grew up. And, of course, we're also being joined by our good friend, Bill Tucker, from Newsmack Media. Thanks very much for being with us, Bill. Always good. Thanks, sir. Bill Tucker, you're not from Tucker, Georgia, are you? N- no, I had a I had a cousin who lived in Tucker, Did you, Was it named after them? <laughs> no, no, it was named after the Tucker family. That's okay. a long story. <laughs> Should I get to know you? <laughs> <laughs> Marvin, uh, you wrote a letter on September 1st, 2017, to Bishop DeMarcio. How often do you get called into a radio show because you read a letter to a bishop? Huh? The first time. <laughs> you wrote a letter to him. Why did you write to him? Why would a guy in Georgia write to a bishop in Brooklyn? Because- Were you writing to all bishops or- We you... were writing to all, what is it, 196, 197 yeah. diocese because yeah. my partner and I uh, in this professional endeavor, Nancy Grogan, believe that the Catholic Church should begin to have a greater conversation around the issue of gun violence prevention. It's tackled so many of you know life and death issues, whether that's yeah. abortion, capital punishment, war. I think there's a place for the greater place for the Catholic Church within this conversation, within the national dialogue, and particularly because there's a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of Catholics throughout the country, and a lot there's a lot of ambivalence. I mean, it's a controversial issue, and that's right. reflected within the Catholic populace of America. Well, you said, uh, you said the loudest voices in the gun control debate are often those on the far extremes 
Uh, and then you spoke about, in that letter, you said the Church has long held that legitimate defense of our own lives and the lives of those entrusted to us can be both a right and a grave duty. Uh, and yet do we answer violence for violence? I'm just kind of quoting some sure. points in your letter here. You said, ultimately, our goal is not to advocate one any political side, but to educate about Catholicism, educate about Catholicism, hence our interest in ministerial activities. Yes. Uh, and so you're asking, the, you asked the Diocese of Brooklyn to speak about gun violence. We thought it was a good idea to ask you to come here, uh, especially in light of the fact of the shooting in Texas that took place in a church. Yes. So what's the position of the Brennan Center and you, Marvin, and you and your, your is your partner Nancy? Uh, yes, yeah, yes. And, and she's partner. based in Philadelphia. Okay. And I just reached out to her because I was casting about for people in the Catholic community in America working on this issue. Uh-huh. And she really was the only one I found that was focused on the issue. And so we've since partnered up for about a year now. And we came up with this idea together. And as a segue, to be clear, I'm not here in my professional capacity with the Brennan Center. Okay. I, that's a secular organization. Right, I'm right. here because I'm a proud and devout Catholic that wants, along with Nancy, the Catholic Church, she's also a devout Catholic, yeah. for the Catholic Church to address this issue in, in a greater way. And to, you know, you're quoting the letter. We're not advocating for any political stance. I think the number one goal is to really get the conversation moving. And some of that has happened, particularly after the Newtown Massacre. But yeah. since then, as you mentioned, there have been, you know, shootings Las Vegas in and Las Vegas and then Texas. shootings in, in churches. And in in Georgia, for example, we do have laws that permit guns in, in churches. It's very different than some other environments. And without advocating for one position or another, I can tell you that people within my own church didn't know that that was a fact, that didn't know that there might be guns there. And so I think the mission of education is far more important right now to, to us, Nancy and myself, than advocating for any one position. All right, so I think everybody, though, Marvin's going to say, yes. gun violence is bad. We don't like gun violence. Agreed. So everyone's against gun violence. But now the question is, is what are we going to do on gun violence? Yes. So, you know, there are going to be some of people, and the New York Times uh, actually this week actually had a mm-hmm. back page piece on that and said that some of the measures of the left are not working. They had some proposals mm-hmm. uh, that they thought would work. Uh, so let's talk about what it is uh, what is at the heart of the matter? What is it that you guys would be advocating for when you say educating about gun violence? What are the things that you want to educate about? I think the number one thing, personally, is for me to advocate on the issue of suicides and firearms. Okay. It's an issue I think we can all agree on that that is bad. All the focus on the media, or most of the focus is on crimes and particularly mass shootings, mm-hmm. yet a lot of the education can be around suicides and firearms, and particularly gun owners. One of my missions is to go around, I was just at a shooting range last Monday, talking about how do you educate people on this issue of safety and storage and how your training classes So, So here's, here's the question is, is and Bill, you know, Bill, you'd be a, a big pro Second Amendment guy. I, yeah, I do. And you know, let me weigh in on something here yeah. because this is really interesting. I'm a very, very pro Second Amendment guy. I grew up in the South. I yeah. grew up with relatives who all own multiple guns, not just a single gun. And it's, and, and it's interesting, and, I, and I, I do want to talk about this idea of how do we educate people about safety because when I was a young kid, there were a lot of discussions about guns. Before I ever, before I, I saw my, my, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, I saw yeah. them all handling guns. I was never allowed to touch a gun until I understood fully and totally the safety requirements. Right. Not the safety ideas. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the I needed technical. to understand what that, what that weapon was, what its purpose was, and I needed to practice safe 
gun handling. So, Bill, I could ever touch it. So, so are you always so are you suggesting that people should not be able to get a gun until they're able to undergo that kind of training? No, 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 no. I, I find I, I, I am in agreement with him on on a moral ethical basis. Yeah. It, if, as a gun owner, if I am if, if within my family. It is it is a, a sacred duty of mine to guard my constitutional right of mm-hmm. the Second Amendment to make sure that anyone who would be handling my guns understands what's mm-hmm. required. But like Marvin raised an important point, and the point was about mental health. Right. Right. And so let's ask this: Can uh, should the government screen out for gun ownership people with a history of mental health issues? Well, we do. So we do. We do. Like in example, for example, in that Sutherland Springs case. So what happened? One of the Texas? things that would have disqualified him was he was an escapee from a mental facility yeah, so, in 2012. So what happened? Because the paper, the system broke down in every way. How that did it, it break down in Sandy Hook? Break down. Well, in that one, which is fascinating, the more and more we know, that was a breakdown of the parent, unfortunately, right. because she taught her son how to use guns, even though she had been advised. That it was a bad idea okay. outside her family. And even though the police have been notified of conversations that other people outside the family had heard and notified the police, she she was aware that there was a risk there. And I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't I, that that's a deeply troubling issue because I don't know how that could have been. So screening resolved. for mental health is a, one of the proposals you would be a proponent of. Absolutely. It's a complicated issue because I want to make clear that most people with any sort of diagnosed mental health problem do not are not violent people. Right. And we don't want to stigmatize that. We don't want to restrict their freedoms. Right. It tends to be something that we do see in the news. But as you mentioned, if you're going to talk about various incidents, there's differing factors and there's some commonalities, but there's also a lot of differences, which I think speaks to the fact that there is obviously no one policy that's going to solve all of these problems. One of the things I want to bring forward is government intervention, no government intervention. To your point, Mm -hmm. families and people that do have guns should have a greater role in, in educating people. And from, from what I've seen, and I'm particularly going out to rural communities in, in Georgia, in Kansas, there that isn't as strong, anywhere near as strong as it could and should be. It might have been great in the past, yeah. but I don't think from what I've seen, it is as good as it could be now. And I think to you know, tie it back to why we're all here, I think that the Catholic Church can have a role in encouraging those conversations because that's not a political conversation right. by any means. A, no, you know what it is? It's a moral, it's an ethical conversation. It is an obligation that I think as adults, as, as functioning citizens of the United States, in, in the context of why that right is important, why it is not just a given, we should be... Ha- I don't understand. I don't understand people who don't have those conversations, but I have learned... There are people who don't. Well, I, I mean, in the, nor- you know, in the Northeast, so few, in the Northeast, right. very few people are in the Northeast. Let's put it this way. In New York City, not a lot of people are legitimately carrying weapons. In right. other words, not a lot of people have a concealed carry permit or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Not no. too many of us. No. Right. So uh, it, I don't think most New York City residents would be huge Second Amendment guys. I don't think there's a huge NRA following here well, in Well, you know, City. the comment I get from a lot of people is, why would I want to own a gun? I mean, you know, I, I just... And it's like, that's great. Then don't. Yeah, they don't, they don't have don't. that. That's right. So, so, but I'm trying to understand this question is, is your point and the point of what you're trying to do is, is simply to get churches to speak about it so that they could raise awareness 
uh, in individual families and households so that there could be, or are you looking to start a conversation that would have an impact on public policy? Ultimately, the the latter would be great. It would be. But I think the former right now is the most important thing. Safety first. And I think when I look to ministries in in, in Catholic churches that are talking about, you know, these life and death issues, whether it's a respect life ministry or even a justice ministry that Mm -hmm. talks about war, I think there's a space for exactly this. And you can have conversations about policy, hopefully respectful conversations. But But then I think that those conversations would reveal that A, I, I'm the first to admit these policies are complicated and there's no one magic talisman. But on the other hand, there's a lot of education that can be done both among gun owners and people that are opposed to guns. For example, I know the mechanisms on an assault rifle. I think it's important for people to opposing those to know a little bit more about what exactly they're opposing. So there's a lot of technical education that goes on as well that will feed advocacy. And that was part of the Times article this last week was saying, in fact, a lot of people oppose are not familiar enough with the technical components that they understand what is right. what they're adver- advocating for. But there is a fundamental uh, difference, I think, in, 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 on the gun question. And this, is, and this is an area where I think there has to be some discussion, is Bill Tucker, you believe fundamentally the reason why uh, you own a gun or why people should have the right to own a gun, what the reason right. for the Second Amendment is to prevent the state from robbing you of your liberties. Right. 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 So, uh, but a I, lot it, of people who would oppose the Second Amendment, and I don't, I'm not suggesting you do oppose the Second Amendment, but I'm saying a lot of people would not fundamentally agree with that position. That that's the purpose of gun ownership, right? Right. So if we start there, that that's the this is the this is one of the breakdown of of the conversation is because there is a large portion of population which is which owns guns because there is a concern about the state becoming totalitarian. Right. And then and in fact. There's the other side of the argument, which which would tend to to prove the point by wanting to take away the guns. Right. <laughs> it, it, right. It's exactly. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I I I'm I I I'm going to declare myself in full support so far of of him and his mission. Yeah, because, because right now, because he's saying let's just talk about raise awareness, blah blah blah. But his ultimate goal, his ultimate goal is to bring about policy changes, which maybe you would not agree. Well, with. no, I wouldn't agree. I, I I wouldn't agree with him in in regards to policy change, but I do think the conversation that he wants the church to encourage people to have and to be aware of of the morality and the ethical issues that surround gun ownership are profoundly important. Right. And to that point, I think, you know, these moral conversations do feed into the policy conversations. And the way that I try to start this conversation is some people believe that there is a right to bear arms. That is not exactly coterminous or equal with the right to self-defense, which certainly I'm in full support of. I've met people that aren't, but that's not my position. Right. But then that itself is part, in my opinion, of a larger, you know, right to life that can be traced down to, you know, Augustine and Aquinas and an equal right to life. And then once you recognize those common principles that we can all agree on, at least you could start to have those conversations of, you know, what is the exact policy that we're going to support or not support? Because I'm not here to say, let's take away all the guns. If nothing else, that is impractical and I think would cause, if we tried to do that right now, that would cause a lot of problems. <laughs> but, but that doesn't, but, but, but that actually is a policy matter has never really been tried to just take away all the guns. It's even right. some on the margins, there is some difficulties in terms of limiting the ammunition and right. there's uh, and some other questions. So there are, 
anytime there has been proposals of restrictions sure. on gun ownership and gun yeah. rights, there are sense to be problems. Let's just and talk a little bit about uh, the human right to self-defense uh, and also about the inviolability of, mm-hmm. of human life. How does Catholic theology inform this discussion? you got about 30 seconds to answer that question. I know that's a lot. I the think seniors asking you that question. So <laughs> be a good answer. As I mentioned, I think if you'll find in Catholic theology, the Aquinas's of the world, there's well-developed theories. They generally apply to war, which is called collective self-defense. Right. This is individual self-defense. A lot of those principles matter here as well. Whether you're looking at if you're going to use deadly force with a firearm, it has to be proportionate. It has to be the last resort. There has to be discrimination, meaning you shouldn't be targeting sort of innocent people. One of the things that I say about assault rifles is because one of the problems with it, it's kind of indiscriminate. You're not targeting one person. And so I think those are the principles that already in Catholic Church that we've already adopted, by the way, in war talk, whether in the secular dialogue. So I think Catholic doctrine has already contributed so much, and I think it could get um, draw on what it has already contributed and bring it to this new context to inform theology and be leaders in these discussions among secular and uh, theological circles. Marvin Lim is an attorney and uh, works with the Brennan Center, uh, but mostly he is a good Catholic man uh, from uh, Georgia. <laughs> trying to keep the sacraments. Who's yeah. trying to uh, who's trying to provoke a discussion. On, uh, on the question of gun safety. So we're grateful for you to be with us. Bill Tucker, thanks as always for being with no, us thank here. thank you. Such a pleasure. We'll be right back. Dear Calvary Hospital, my dad was at the end of his life, suffering from pancreatic cancer. I knew there was only one place that could relieve his pain and ours as well, Calvary Hospital. His wish was to die at home, So it was Calvary Home Hospice that provided Dad with the quality of life he deserved, filled with exceptional comfort and warmth. He passed on with dignity and grace, and we were all there with him. A year later, my mom needed the same Calvary care. And once again, Calvary's expert home hospice staff was there for us. My parents gave me unqualified love their entire lives. There was no better way for me to return this love than with Calvary's care. Yours truly, Deborah DiGregorio. This is Frank Calamari, president of Calvary Hospital. Our world-renowned hospice program brings our expert end-of-life care right into your home. Call us at 718-518-2465. Liquid Dreams Design. Outstanding for all your printing needs, especially same-day service, including banners, signs, posters, graphics, custom wall coverings, and step-and-repeat backdrops. Call 718-627-8599 and mention to Sales Media Now to get 10% off. Or visit their website at liquiddreamsdesign.com. Founded in 1985, the Brooklyn Veterinarian Group, located on New Utrecht Avenue, has been serving the community's pet needs for over 25 years. Dr. Pernice and his staff handle everything from prevention of heartworms, fleas, ticks to vaccinations, x-rays, and routine surgical procedures. Call 718-331-7775. Again, that number is 718-331-7775. Check out their website at www.brooklynvetgroup.com. Mention In the Arena and receive 10% off your first visit. 
The FBI reports there is a burglary in the U.S. every 15 seconds. If you're not alarmed, you should be. At Alarms R Us, we keep your loved ones safe with our burglar and fire alarm systems and 24-hour central station monitoring. Call Alarms R Us toll-free at 866-996-6900 to schedule your free security consultation. Again, that number is 866-996-6900. It's always better to be safe than sorry. So call Alarms R Us now to protect your home and family. And Butchies of Brooklyn, Italian kitchen and legendary desserts. We offer everything, a cafe, a bakery, a restaurant, and full bar. Our kitchen offers old world Italian recipes handed down from generation to generation, specializing in Italian American cuisine. Let us host your next affair in our home, or we can cater to you in your home. Located in Staten Island at 4864 Arthur Kill Road, and you can call us at 718-227-0002. In the arena with Monsignor Kieran Harrington on 710 WOR. Hey gang, welcome back to In the Arena. My name is Monsignor Kieran Harrington. If you've been watching any faith-based films recently, you can best bet that Joe Battaglia was involved. Uh, Joe uh, is the founder and CEO of Renaissance Media. He seeks out and promotes worthy projects, including the recent film, Same Kind of Different as Me, and the animated take on the nativity, the star Welcome Joe to In the Arena. Well, thank you, Monsignor. Always good to be with you. It is uh, our pleasure to have you again. Tell us a little bit about, uh, before promoting the book, tell us a little bit about uh, how you find time to promote faith-based films and movies. (laughs) Well, time is always dictated by the need. (laughs) (laughs) And so one of the things we do with our company, and we've been doing for (laughs) years now, is uh, the promotion of uh, faith-based movies. Um, We started, like I said, some years ago at the very nascent stages of all this and have grown with it since, and our world is specifically that of radio and the uh, promotion of uh, these movies on national radio. Mm -hmm. And so um, they have progressively become better and better and as as evidenced recently, and the, the most recent two that we're working on, same kind of different as me, and then the star, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it's all good. What kind of market is there for these types of films? Well, there's become a very huge market. Um, many of the movies, of course, uh, are now uh, attracting very name stars uh, from Hollywood who are participating, you know, um, Certainly, uh, the ones we've done in the uh, most recently with, uh, like you mentioned, same kind of different as me, with uh, Greg Kinnear and mm-hmm. Renee Zellweger and uh, Jaiman Hunsu, uh, stellar performances. Uh, you know the voices that are used on the star, which is releasing in two weeks, um, and these are very well-known people. You know everybody from Tyler Perry and Oprah and uh, Anthony Anderson and Gina Rodriguez and Delilah and Kelly Clarkson and Patricia Heaton. And so uh, we have a whole group of movies coming out next year as well that are going to be just fabulous. Um, So um, Now, I know most parents never want to tell you who their favorite child is, but tell me what your favorite production is so far that you've been working on. Well, I mean, I've worked on 
you know, almost 70, 80 movies now in, in the last decade. And so uh, I do have some ones that I've particularly enjoyed I, uh, because of what they represented and the quality of acting that they brought mm-hmm. to the table. Um, we've been involved, for instance, with our friends Alex and Stephen Kendrick from the very beginning with, with Facing the Giants uh, and their last one a couple of years ago, War Room was just fabulous in the terms in terms of uh, the message that they get out there. I mean, they don't use name actors, but uh, how they take, in a sense, a sermon and put it to film in order to inspire uh, is just fabulous. So I, I really like that one. And then we go from that to, you know, last year when we did uh, Risen with Joe Fiennes, uh, which was just fabulous as portrayal as a Roman centurion mm-hmm. uh, coming to faith, uh, and then Miracles from Heaven last year with Jennifer Garner and Queen Latifah, just another fabulous movie. And I think even, you know, recently, you know, when we did Same Kind of Different two weeks ago, I mean, Zellweger and Kinnear did a very good job portraying the true story of this uh, couple in Dallas who befriended a, the homeless man uh, perf- uh, performed by uh, Jaiman Hunsu, who really stole the show. Mm-hmm. He was just fabulous. And so um, these have been, you know, some real favorites, you know, of mine over the past couple of years. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I can't wait till next year because we have some other fabulous movies coming out that I think are, are going to wind up being some of my favorites as well. All right. So when you take a look at a film and you're you're when you're surveying the landscape here, what do you think of the elements that are going to make a, a make this film a success? And what are the what are the biggest concerns you have when you see something that you think would be a great success, but you're concerned about actually getting the project completed? What, how would that how would you sketch? Well, that? I think part of the concern that we always have is um, the time we have in order to help promote it adequately. In our world, if you want to label it as faith-based, we have to start months out in order to build a real grassroots movement. We go from, um, not from top down, but from bottom up. And, And so organically, to create something that enables us to get the promotion out months ahead takes an, uh, a really uh, good amount of time and a good amount of teamwork on the staff that does that. Um, and so that's the one thing that's always important to realize in terms of generating the grassroots support for the, the faith-based movies. I think also the thing that concerns me sometimes is that uh, these movies are very good. Um, and sometimes the label itself as faith-based might not really communicate to people uh, that this is something they may want to see because they may have a misconception of what that really means. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it almost that, seems like it won't be as entertaining. It won't be as stimulating. Yeah. Exactly. And sometimes that's just the opposite. It is an amazingly entertaining movie and stimulating um, and inspiring. And uh, certainly you and I would concur, and I think many of our listeners, that we need things that are inspiring in a day and age when it seems like everything is being dumbed down to be less than inspirational, to be almost antagonistic right that's the that's Uh, the challenge right i would think that the controversy like christians struggling with understanding the the conflict the controversy is sometimes where i think we get into 
the difficulty, right? Like some yeah. some filmmakers, uh, some authors, uh, they're able to to get into that zone where they're able to touch the conflict. Uh, but but it's a hard thing to do. It's a, it's a very hard technically to do, isn't it? Yeah. Well, of course, great storytelling is always the key to anything, right? Right. That's right. Uh, Jesus was the greatest storyteller, and the things that he told have stood, the, you know, the test of time because there is something about them that is so uh, moving and endearing, and you know, and quite providential. Of course, we believe. Um, I think all creators of anything are storytellers. Right. The degree to which they are able to tell that story in a way that touches the heart and the and the soul is what makes it worlds apart from anything that, you know, um, appeals to the more, let's say, prurient interests in men. The narrative narrative is much more essential than the sex or the violence or whatever else in another commercial product, right? Yeah, and we see uh, by statistically that those movies that do not appeal to those things, um, the sex and the violence, uh, are not the ones that really uh, generate huge box office response, you know, and so um, the opportunity to tell the narrative that we are entrusted with in a way that affirms uh, people, that affirms our faith, that affirms the individual, and that tells the greater story of humanity and its ability to transcend all the, the bad things in life and that inspire, you know, those are the things that we want to go after and work on and um and I think that's a high calling for whatever we do in life, at whatever stage we are in whatever profession we are, that whenever we aspire to the higher goal, to the, the higher road of touching people where they really need to be touched in their hearts and their souls, that will stand the test of time. Um, and that will always be the better road to take, regardless of what we may see on the outside, um, of what uh, others are doing that may, you know, be profitable, that may seem like it's, you know, All right, or, so, you know, famous or whatever. But Joe, so no. if you if you come to me and you say, you know, Karen, I'd like you to invest in my film. And I, I, is my motivation going to be, you know what, I want you to make a great film because uh, I want to promote the gospel message. Or is I, am I going to say to you, Joe, I want a return and this is the return I'm expecting you to get me. Well, yeah, I mean, most of the movies, of course, have, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, well, a lot of the movies I work on have private investors that go to the movie companies and already have a movie that is either produced uh, or are willing to invest in some way in order to get a return. Um, And so that is a very logical thing to ask, and that is becoming more and more the case. So... Uh, we see that happening all the time in many of the movies. Joe Battaglia is coming out with a new book, Unfriended, Restoring True Community in a Social Media World. But you know him from so many different projects that are faith-based projects. He's the man who makes sure that the word gets out. And we're grateful to you for all the work in your ministry, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And to your audience for listening, I appreciate it. May the Lord hold you, Joe, and us all in the palm of his hands. Mm-hmm. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.